Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. A typical psalm, by the way, of what we're going to be studying tonight of the last days, mixing in all these themes of the victory of the Lord, his salvation to the ends of the earth, his uh, faithfulness to the house of Israel, the uh, nations praising the Lord, creation itself being renewed, and the judgment of all the earth, as though it were all going to come in a single day in one fell swoop, but as we know, it plays out much more slowly than those ancients probably recognized. And so we are uh, learning something in our evening, brief evening series about the, the, uh, the hope for the future that we have uh, tonight, these last days. And if you have a Bible and you'd like to turn with me, I'd like to go to Genesis chapter 49. Perhaps not the text you would be thinking of when you're hearing about the last days, but um, here we are, Genesis chapter 49, as Jacob now blesses his sons. Reading from verse 1 down to verse 12. And Jacob called his sons and said, gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. Gather yourselves together and hear, O you sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. Unstable is water. You shall not excel, because you went up to your father's bed. You defiled it. <coughs> he went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi, our brothers, instruments of cruelty, are in their dwelling place. <clears throat> let not my soul enter their council, nor let my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Israel and scatter them in, ja excuse me, in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow before you. Judah is a lion's whelp from the prey, my son. You have gone up. He bows down. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to it the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Let us pray together. Oh, our Father in heaven, we do rejoice in your salvation. We rejoice in the great Savior whom you have given to us for not a plan of salvation have you given so much as one who is your salvation, who has been your salvation to these ends of the earth, and pray that he would continue to be that uh, king of glory in our hearts at all times. We pray that you would unfold something of the great expectation that your people had in awaiting him and the great glory and hope that they knew would be fulfilled in his coming or in his reign. So now we pray that you would give us an understanding of this time as we ask it in his name. Amen. 
the first Christians were mightily inspired by the promise of the Lord's coming back. Our citizenship is in heaven, Paul wrote, from which also we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Many Christians today, likewise, are eagerly anticipating the return of Christ, though not always in the healthiest way. All the talk when I was growing up was about the signs of the Lord's return. This was happening in the Soviet Union. This was happening in Israel. The European Common Market, or now the European Union, was said by some to be the revival of the Roman Empire, that Babylon uh, of the book of Revelation. And when the tenth nation was added to the common market, people said the end was surely at hand. Predictions were made with great confidence, but of course, none of them came true. It didn't stop the predictions from being made. Next to the Bible, the best-selling nonfiction book of the decade in the 1970s was The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey. Hal Lindsey wrote, The Hebrew prophets predicted that as man neared the end of history, as we know it, there would be a precise pattern of events which would loom up in history. Great and terrible events which he enumerated, which indeed were being fulfilled all around us. And the message was, the signs of the times are at hand. We are living in these last days and Christ is surely coming. Well, many churches were abuzz in the 1980s because a book announced that there were 88 reasons that Jesus was coming back in 88. When that happened, the author realized he had miscalculated by a year and made more money publishing the Rapture Report 1989. The time is short, he wrote. Everything points to it. All the evidence has piled up. The evidence has piled up. One writer said something had piled up, but it was not evidence. In the 2000s, the Left Behind series became the best-selling fiction series ever written. The message was the same, although, again, all the names and countries had been updated for the fall of the Soviet Union and now the rise of militant Islam. But these were all the signs predicted in the Bible. These are the very last days. In the summer of 2013, a survey was done. The Barna Group found that 41% of all U.S. adults and 77% of evangelicals believe that the world is now living in the last days. That survey commissioned by a man named James Fitzgerald to correspond with the release of his new book. Perhaps you've already forgotten it, but it was a big seller at the time. The 9-11 Prophecy. Startling evidence. The end times have begun, was the title. He writes, uh, sorry, from an interview here. When I tell people about my book or have talked with those who read it, one of the first things they invariably express is how concerned they are for their own children in light of where we are in the world today. My book will give them lots of evidence to back up what they are already thinking and sensing intuitively. I demonstrate that the biblical end times began on 9-11. He has chapters on the rise of Islam, the reign of Antichrist, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, false religion, famine, war, and death. The names are changed. The message is identical. Today's events are all precisely predicted in the Bible, testifying to us that these are the 
last days. Frankly, so it has been throughout the last 2,000 years among at least some Christians, somewhere or another. Oh, the, 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 the scene was, was dramatic uh, on uh, New Year's Eve 999 as the, uh, as the thousand year mark was about to be reached and, and people were certain that Jesus was going to return and the end of the world was at hand. Well, uh, again and again in every generation, sensational claims give way to dashed expectations. And frankly, this has been most unhealthy for the church. I doubt that there has been a time when there hasn't been some group of people somewhere looking at the newspaper, reading the signs of the times, and confidently announcing Christ is about to appear. All through the ages, people have been saying apocalypse now, and the fact that they have all been profoundly wrong should at least chasten us. That we need to beware our tendency to draw certain but unwarranted conclusions about the last days. And what I would like to do with you this evening in this uh, series we're doing is to uh, try to answer two simple questions for you. Uh, according to the Bible, when are the last days? And secondly, to begin to answer the question, and for yet do we, what, for, sorry, for what do we await? We're going to start from the beginning. We're going to look at the very first time the last days is mentioned in the Bible which begins, and I read, in Genesis chapter 49. When are the last days? In this passage, the patriarch Jacob becomes the first to prophesy, at least explicitly, I should say, about these last days. Jacob is blessing his sons. He is near to death. Uh, the first three get a uh, rather hard word, as you've heard. But when he gets to Judah, he says, Judah is a lion's whelp. Uh, surely it seems here in context, the lion being a royal symbol. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet. As many of you will know, uh, King David surely began the fulfillment of that prophecy as uh, the first king of Israel descended from Judah. Many centuries later, we find Solomon, Rehoboam, Abijah, Zedekiah fulfilling this prophecy in their own way. All of those names you'll find on page one of the New Testament, as Matthew records the royal line of Judah. But of course, the prophecy hardly stops there. It merely begins. The great, great fulfillment uh, awaits till the end. The, the, the scepter shall not depart until there is a mighty fulfillment. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until. And there is one coming, you see, to whom shall supremely be the obedience of the people, indeed of the nations, the one who ties his donkey to the vine and washes his garments with wine and so forth. And like all the prophets of the last days, there is this glorious expectation, this hope of the world that lies in this coming king. So from the very first, when the last days are mentioned, we are given this hope of a king. Now there's a word here that's uh, not translated in my version. In verse 10, it's been much debated. I have here Shiloh. It's a slight variation on the Hebrew words to whom 
that, the possessive. Uh, it, it, it could be read as uh, to whom it is. Many of you have something like that. It shall not depart until the one comes to whom it belongs. The NIV reads, the scepter shall not depart from Judah and so forth until he comes to whom it belongs and the obedience of the nations is his. Well, Shiloh, um, or the one to whom the scepter belongs, is the one destined by God to rule, to extend his rule over all the peoples and nations of the earth. In this passage, we are also told about the prosperity that will come with his reign, binding his donkey to a vine and the donkey's colt to the choice vine, <coughs> washing his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. Uh, some of your translations will differ because the, prophecy, the, the poetry is a bit hard to translate here, but the meaning is generally the same. Derek Kidner comments, every line speaks of exuberant, intoxicating abundance. Because you would never tie your vine, tie, sorry, tie a donkey to your choice grapevine, right? What would he do? He would eat it. But here the image is that there is so much plenty, so much abundance, that the curse on the earth has been rolled back to the point where no one cares if a donkey is tethered to a vine and eats his fill. Same thing about washing your, your clothes in wine, having the same sense. You would never wash your clothes in rich purple wine, no matter how much you like that color purple and how valuable it was in the ancient world. You would never do that. You would have to be living in a paradise to be washing your clothes in wine. But in the Messiah's day, there is going to be such a rolling back of the curse that we read about last week where the ground was cursed for the man's sake and so forth, that the Messiah comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found, that the earth itself will have such an abundance of wine that people will wash their clothes, that he'll wash his clothes in it. And throughout the Old Testament, the Messiah is then described in these glorious terms of unimaginable plenty and the renewal of creation itself Wine also symbolic of joy and plenty and the king's eyes darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. His beauty reflected in the bounty of his kingdom and in his glorious countenance. Here is your king, beautiful, powerful, preeminent, prosperous, the, the desire of all the nations. Well, uh, I, can't, I can't get too specific about these prophecies and it's hard to be so dogmatic about the meaning of these words exactly for the very reasons I explained to you last week. First of all, this prophecy is given in poetry, not prose. It gives us images rather than explanations. Second, the, the time of the fulfillment is not clear. Uh, there's a prophecy of a coming ruler, yes, of the tribe of Judah, the lion of the tribe of Judah, if you like, the one which has its fulfillments supremely in Jesus Christ, of course, uh, a prophecy that will not be complete in, 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 until probably the renewal of all things, probably. It, it, we have here something called inaugurated eschatology, not to throw you off too much, but uh, there it is that it's, it's uh, in the process here. Christ's domain, his dominion is, extend, is currently extending to the nations. Um, he has not yet received the obedience of his brethren. The, the, the creation itself has not been fully renewed and uh, restored, at least in this abundance. But 
we have here the, a picture that's uh, given as it were, everything painted as if it were coming in a single moment. Very typical, we saw it last week. And fourth, we have this one glimpse of the future. Then we, we struggle sometimes to fit that together with other things. What about the Holy Spirit? What about the uh, other things that are discussed elsewhere? It, it's just a piece of the puzzle, a, 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 a beautiful piece, but a piece that you have to patiently fit together with others. And so, as I say, this is the first reference to the end times. It's the last, the last days. It's surely a prophecy of the Messiah. And uh, given with uh, some of those explanations and difficulties I gave you last time. So let's try to put together a few more pieces, shall we? Let's have a few more references that the Bible gives to the last days and see if we can map this out a little better. The next use of the phrase last days is in the prophecy of Balaam in Numbers chapter 24. 24, 14. Balaam says to Balak, Come, I will advise you what this people will do to your people, says the prophet Balaam, in the latter days. That's what I have translated, but it's exactly the same phrase in the original. The last days. Balaam says, he prophesies, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy the sons of Tumult. And Edom shall be his possession. Seir also, his enemies shall be a possession, while Israel does valiantly. For out of Jacob one shall have dominion and destroy the remains of the city. Well, this gets us a good bit further. Obviously a messianic pro prophecy, one of victory in the earth, one of the possessing the gates of his foes. It gets us further. But Moses speaks more clearly yet about the last days, both in Deuteronomy chapter 4 and 31. He mentions them as he tells Israel what's going to happen to them as a nation in the last days. He tells them very plainly, look, you're going to enter the land and then you're going to depart from the ways of the Lord. And you're going to fall under judgment and it's going to culminate in exile. But, he says, chapter 4, verse 25, the Lord will scatter you among the peoples and only a few of you will survive among the nations to which the Lord will drive you. There you will worship man-made gods of wood and stone which cannot see or hear or eat or smell. But, not the end, in wrath, God remembers mercy. Next verse. But if from there you seek the Lord your God, you will find him if you look for him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you're in distress and all these things have happened to you, then in the latter days or the la in the last days, same exact phrase, you will return to the Lord your God and obey him. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He'll not abandon you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your forefathers, which he confirmed to them by oath. Okay, so the promise of a remnant being restored and God again blessing his people and the obedience of the nation of Israel uh, coming back to the Lord. Um, more, is, uh, more is given at the end and a, and a messianic hope, but I'm going to jump a little further as prophet after prophet begins to look more and more cl clearly forward to the last days. Hosea warns the nation, hey, 
Israel, you're going to fall under judgment, but the Lord is going to bring you back from exile. And then the age of Messiah and a spiritual return will take hold of the people. Uh, Hosea 3.5. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. This is years after David, but it's a messianic term. They'll seek David their king and they shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the last days. Israel shall return and seek the Lord and David their king. Daniel speaks about the coming of God's kingdom, about how, 2.28, there's a God in heaven who revealed secrets, who's made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the last days. He says that in the days of the uh, fourth kingdom, um, so uh, uh, Chaldea or uh, Babylon, uh, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, and Rome, in the days of that fourth kingdom, we read, uh, in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. And he goes on to describe the vision of one like the Son of Man who comes with the clouds of heaven, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one which shall not be destroyed. Are you getting a picture? Because you might say, I, I don't understand what this has to do with all the people who are talking about the last days today. Exactly. These prophets longed for the last days. They loved the thought of these last days. The age when the nations shall come and worship the Lord and learn his ways. A time we read elsewhere in the prophets of Isaiah and Micah, for instance, of world peace, when the kingdom of the Prince of Peace shall extend his reign from nation to nation, a time when the exile will at last be over and the nation will turn wholeheartedly to their God and David their king, a time of the Messiah's shepherd rule over the nations when the saints will at last be victorious over their enemies and live in peace. This was the picture that, that the Jews still today long to see in the last days. Now, let me be clear. Despite the fact that so many wonderful things are going to happen in the last days, the kingdom coming, the Messiah, the Holy Spirit being poured out in the last days, universal worship and peace and so forth, we are warned that all things are not going to be light and peace uh, all in the last days. I mean, we're, we're not talking about heaven after all. We are told in many of these prophecies about the adversaries that, were, that are going to rise up in the last days, but... We are told God's people will overcome their adversaries by the power of God. This, for example, let me continue in Daniel's prophecy of the last days. He says in the last days of God's kingdom, uh, this little horn is going to come who makes war against the saints. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High. He shall persecute the saints of the Most High. He shall intend to change times and law. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for time and times and half a time. But the court shall be seated and they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. Then the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. 
will overlap with the previous one. I won't be able to explain, but uh, the, uh, the hope then of victory over the enemies is what's given here. Or, or Micah continues, uh, your hand shall be lifted up against your adversaries and all your enemies shall be cut off. I mean, there are adversaries, there are enemies, but there's going to be victory. Same thing is then true as we turn to the New Testament. Uh, here it is in Hebrews chapter 1. As Hebrews begins, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he's appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he himself had purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Are these the last days? Oh yeah, these last days. Are these good days? Oh, these are days that the people long to see. Messiah has come. He's taken his seat on the throne of God. Well, does that mean evil is vanquished? Certainly not. Though he does go on to say in chapter 1, verse 13, to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? We'll be seeing that psalm tonight as we close. In fact, I've already quoted it once. It's the most commonly quoted psalm in the New Testament, Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. It's not that Messiah has no enemies in these last days. He has abundant enemies. But the important thing is that they will not prevail. There is nothing that will prevent the advance of his kingdom among the nations of the earth. They, the, his enemies will be made the footstool of his feet, a picture of, of victory. Well, what about us individually? We, we might look, you might, might want to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. Paul warns Timothy to beware of certain evil men in light of what, what's going on. All right, 2 Timothy 3, verse 1. But know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedience to parents, unthankful, unholy. Have we gotten rid of wicked men in the last days? Well, absolutely not. They've already come. And uh, uh, the reason why he's saying this is because we're in the last days. So verse 5, Timothy, from such people, turn away. This isn't talking about sometime, you know, way, way into the future. Uh, Timothy, beware of these people, as I told you, that these must come in the last days. The last days will not be without the abundance of wicked men. But what will happen to these wicked men in the last days? Will they prevail? Let's skip down here to uh, verse 8. Um, always learning but never coming to the knowledge of the truth. Verse 8. Now as Johnnies and Jambres, the traditional names for those magicians who resisted Moses... So do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds disapprove concerning the faith. But they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all, as theirs also was. 
Jonas and Jambres, the Egyptian magicians, they contended against Moses and for a time matched him trick for trick or miracle for miracle or trick for miracle. Uh, and what happened to them at last? Their folly was exposed. They, they simply could not stand before the man of Jehovah. And they were humiliated and overcome. And just as Johnny's and Jambres resisted Moses, but then could progress no further, and so that their folly was manifest to all, and the Lord's glory revealed, so it will be, Paul says, in the last days. So, what am I saying? This is what we are looking forward to in the last days? Certainly not total victory. Not a day without evil men. That day will not come until heaven. But we look for a day in the, in the last day, the time in the last days, when God's people, by God's power, shall at last overcome Satan's mighty deception of the nations. We heard about a little bit last week. And the God of peace tramples Satan under our feet. Romans 16, 20. James likewise warns the rich that in these last days they are still exploiting the poor. You, you've heaped up treasure in the last days, James 5, 3. Woe to you. Your, your sin of worldliness is greatly compounded now by the fact that here in these last days, in this final period of human history, when the Messiah has come, are you still not putting your wealth to righteous use? Compounding their wickedness in light of the last days. John says that the Antichrist is coming, but that even now many Antichrists have already come, by which we know it's the last hour, which is not exactly the same phrase, but seems to have the same meaning. So there are still wicked men, still hoarding money, even though it's the last days. Uh, the Antichrist's uh, spirit already at work. Many Antichrists have come. There is a great Antichrist that will be revealed at the end. First John refers to that also. Don't let your guard down as though this is just a time of unbroken victory and there's going to be no enemies, but this is not a time of defeat. This is a time of substantial victory. I, I always try to picture it in the book of Acts, right? In the book of Acts, uh, is, are, are there wicked men <laughs> in every city op opposing the gospel, causing the people of God to suffer? Yes, yes, yes. Can anything stop the advance of the gospel from city to city and the plundering of the nations and the Lord drawing all people to himself? Nothing can stop it. I have poured out my spirit on all flesh, right? You are going to be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And behold, we turn to the Gentiles, and they will hear it, Paul says. That is the deal. Suffering, yes, but suffering unto victory. Matthew 12, the servant of the Lord, that one who will not break a bruised reed or quench smoking flax, the one who won't quarrel or cry out or have his voice heard in the streets, who's... Whose, whose demeanor and reign is so gentle, but he will send forth justice unto victory, and in his name the Gentiles shall trust. This is what we are to expect, a, a, a gentle but a powerful leavening of the whole lump, that the smallest mustard seed will grow and grow and grow to be greater than all the other plants of the garden, because the last days have come in Jesus. This is expressed in a number of other ways in the New Testament um, uh, about the ends of the ages having come and other things, same, same phrase. But my, my point is, are we living in the last days? Absolutely. What does that mean? The Messiah has come. 
He's taken his reign. He's poured out his spirit. The nations are no longer going to be deceived in darkness for the light of Christ has come. And we are to labor for certain victory rather than inevitable defeat. Now, I know it's a little uh, discouraging the way things are in the present hour in which people don't exactly want to run up to us and hear the word of Jesus. Um, maybe sometimes in history and glorious days of revival it's been that way, but it's not that way today. And so perhaps we think, well, mm, maybe, maybe we're being too optimistic. Maybe this whole Book of Acts outlook on, on life is, 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 too, uh, is just too optimistic. Um, I'm trying to be realistic, but let's, let's face it. Uh, uh, why are we told all these prophecies, though? We are told on a need-to-know basis in order that we might not become discouraged or dismayed because the obstacles against us seem so formidable. You know, there was a time that Israel was in the wilderness, and God told them that he was going to give them this great and glorious land, right, with uh, houses they didn't build and fields they didn't plant, and it was, it was going to be a land flowing with milk and honey. But, he says, uh, you're going to have to fight for it. Um, I'm going to take you from city to city. Nevertheless, they will not stand before you. Everywhere the sole of your foot treads, that's where I'm going to give to you. Why, why did he tell them that? So they could sit around having prophecy conferences? No. Um, because he wanted them to get going, uh, recognizing that as soon as they saw the walls of Jericho, they were going to be filled with fear. They're going to be like, wow, they, they have walls up to the heavens. And, 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 and we are like grasshoppers. The, the sons of, of Anakim are here. What hope, what earthly hope do we have? You remember 10 of the spies came back with that report, right? There's no hope. There's no way we can go into this land. Let's go back. And, and two, of those, two of them said, well, what are you talking about? The Lord is with us. Let's go. I mean, what they're saying is true about the land, but let's go, right? And the Lord said, this generation will not enter, right? This generation does not trust in me. They are so discouraged and depressed at the sight of their enemies rather than being encouraged by the presence and power of their God that I'm not going to give it to them. I'm going to wait for another generation to arise, and they will taste of the fruit of the land, but none of you. And that was a very discouraging, hard time. My, my point is, if we are discouraged by reading the signs of the times, if we have a certain outlook on prophecy that uh, makes it impossible for us to continue the, the bold and joyful witness of our Lord Jesus Christ, um, then we need to go back to the first principles and we need to recognize that Beloved, we are living in the time that they longed to live in. They are, we have received the promises they longed to enjoy. That despite all the wicked men and enemies and suffering and opposition of the world, the world and its nations have been given to King Jesus. All authority in heaven and earth is his. Therefore, we are to go and make disciples of all the nations. And the very gates of hell will not prevail against the building of Christ's church. All right. My second question is only, I'm only able to start on, I'll hopefully give you a more full answer next time. What are we waiting for? Okay, so uh, if these are the last days, what's left to be fulfilled? What are we waiting for? What, what is yet to happen? 
And uh, if you read those books I mentioned earlier, they, they have a great list of things about what Soviet the Soviet Union is going to do, sh what Russia is going to do, sh what Iran is going to do, sh what Saudi Arabia is going to do. Sh you know, it changes every generation, right? Um, uh, what exactly are we waiting for? Well, the Thessalonian church thought that uh, the Lord's uh, return was at hand. And uh, indeed, um, uh, Paul had told them that uh, here you are, you're, you're waiting for the sun from heaven, uh, as you should. But precisely then, in the second letter, to disabuse Christians who were saying that, uh, well, Christ can return at any time, the return of the Lord is at hand. Apparently some of them even stopped working. He, uh, Paul writes, now brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and our gathering together to him, we ask you not soon to be shaken in mind or troubled, either by word or by uh, excuse me, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as though the day of Christ is at hand. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the Son of Man, excuse me, the man of sin is revealed, the Son of perdition, and so forth. He says, look, the, the, don't just think the Lord is going to come any time. The day of the Lord is at hand. That's not the way it's going to be. Don't you remember when I was with you, he says, certain things must happen. There's going to be a, a great apostasy, a, a, the revelation of this antichrist figure. Similarly, when Jesus' disciples asked him about the time of his coming, Jesus spoke about various things that must happen first, um, uh, including, of course, that the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Matthew 24, 14, that certain things must be fulfilled. Jesus has died for men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. I know they will be there on the last day. Certain things must be fulfilled. The gospel must go to the nations, uh, the, uh, the conversion of the Jews. There must be a great apostasy. There must be the revelation of the Antichrist and other things which I, I hope to try to uh, organize for you a bit better next week. But my, my point simply is this, that the big difference among Christians is not whether all these things have to happen first. Everyone agrees that those things have to happen. What they are, what they are divided on is how and when. One school of prophecy teaches that they uh, will be fulfilled after Jesus returns, any moment now, to set up a thousand-year kingdom. No, another school of prophecy teaches these things have already been fulfilled. Already. Jesus can come back any time because in the church and in the, in the uh, uh, work of God in the world, these things have been fulfilled. Yet a third says, no, no, these things have only been somewhat fulfilled and need to have, certain things have yet to, to come. And... Uh, these three schools of prophecy look at, the, look at the same expectations and say either it has already been fulfilled or it will not be fulfilled in this age, but not until Jesus comes, or it's already happening, but it hasn't been done yet. And so you budding theologians out there, that's uh, post-millennialism, pre-millennialism, amillennialism, not in that order. Uh, this is the principal thing that separates these three schools. Postmillennialists do not believe in the imminent return of Christ because they say, no, 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 
Some things have been fulfilled, but other things must still happen. The gospel has not yet gone to the nations. The great apostasy has not yet uh, f had its fulfillment and the revelation of the Antichrist. No, 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 all millennials say like Luther. These things have been fulfilled. The Pope is the Antichrist. The nations have had the gospel, if, at least if they've, they've uh, had the opportunity for the gospel. And uh, all of those spiritual blessings are fulfilled in the church. The coming of Christ is at hand, said Luther. Premillennialists say, what are you talking about? None of these things have been fulfilled. Nothing in the church age has anything to do with those prophecies. Those things will, will all be fulfilled in the age to come when Jesus returns. At least that's the dispensational approach of, to things. Well, we have three completely different interpretations in the church, and it makes a profound difference. Um, if the rapture is going to happen any time, um, well, should we apply to graduate school? Uh, what should we? What should we? Uh, how should we live in light of these things? If the church is doomed, if the ship is sinking, should we polish the brass on a sinking ship? Um, you know, uh, if you read in a prophecy book that the kingdom of Christ in our age is things are waxing worse and worse, and that the return of Christ is imminent, you might think that um, you know, any long-term investment, say in foreign missions and things like schools and seminaries and hospitals and the, uh, the, the kind of infrastructure that you would need to reach a continent, right? right. Uh, India, Southeast Asia, the, the, the things that the church had previously done, you would not think that those things would be worth your investment. You would get people to go through as quickly as possible preaching the gospel, you would not be investing for the long term. John Walver, the uh, longtime president of Dallas Seminary, author of many books on the future, said a few years ago, civilization as a whole is hopeless and subject to God's judgment. Well, that would lead the church perhaps to be on the defensive or at least to have a certain view of missions and uh, not another view. My, my point is uh, these questions on how these things are full, being fulfilled matters. Surely we can agree these are the last days. Surely we can agree that the last days are the days of Messiah. They're great days and uh, uh, days in which the promise of the conversion of nations, the turning of Israel, the peace to the world and so forth is going to flow from Zion. And even if we can't yet uh, agree on how and when all these things would happen, we, we must agree that God has told us the future on a need-to-know basis. We are told that we will have labor, struggling, and enemies, but our labor is not in vain. We suffer, but not unto defeat. The enemies of Christ will not prevail in the end. In this, all three schools agree. Such people may have power and authority now, but Jesus is putting an end to all power and authority one way or the other, and he must reign until all of his enemies are under his feet. We read that time and again. So there is going to be tribulation and distress, and all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. The image of warfare and a church militant is given on practically every page of the New Testament. But just because there's suffering doesn't mean that there's not hope of victory, for he must reign until he's put all of his enemies under his feet. And so let us agree then to pray, O Lord, thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. 
and let us live in the light and the promise of total victory, which we surely expect. So, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we come before you grateful that you have loved us with an everlasting love, that you have called us to yourself to stand before you and to um, be a people for your own possession and name. We thank you for uh, cleansing us by the blood of Christ who has died for our sins, and we thank you that he has uh, made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and we pray that uh, you would bless us as we herald the good news of our King to this world. We pray that we would understand your purposes and that you would uh, attune our minds and our attitudes and our actions to conform ourselves to what you are doing in history. And may we truly pray, hallowed be your name, O Father. Your kingdom come, your will be done. May the King continue. To